Today we will be discussing the role of the Holy Spirit in knowledge. So, so far we've covered the Holy Spirit as he works in the scriptures, in our hearts. Uh, We've discussed the effectual calling, adoption. And ahead of us we have, how does the Holy Spirit operate in the Old Testament? How does the Spirit operate in the resurrection and ascension of Christ? And the Spirit in prayer and the Spirit in spiritual warfare. And we'll probably, unless there's some suggestions on any other topics, we'll probably cap there and move on to another topic. We'll begin this Sunday School by outlining several reasons why we need to understand the Spirit's role in knowledge. The first is an exegetical reason. What do the Scriptures teach about knowledge? And the Scriptures teach, as we'll read shortly, that knowledge comes from God. And so we should know what kind of knowledge comes from God to us in the Scriptures. The second is doctrine. We need to have a foundation that comes up from the scriptures for how God teaches us and what God teaches us. The third is polemics. We need to be able to identify, based on our exegetical and doctrinal standards, what is and isn't correct, and how to appropriately address those things that are not correct, both in our own mind and heart, but also in other people's minds and hearts. And we'll discuss the appropriate setting and application of that. And fourth, experientially, the, the, the application of the scriptures to ourselves. How do we apply what the scriptures say about knowledge to us? How does it, how does it actually, where does the rubber hit the road? Right? How, do we, how do we traverse from doctrine to practice in this? So you, mind, you might find today... Uh, relevant for a number of reasons. The first is that, especially in conservative and Calvinist circles, uh, the topic of epistemology, how you know things, has become all the rage, so to speak, right? Um, Talking about foundations and talking about Bonson and Van Til and classical versus presuppositional apologetics, and it's sort of driven the church a little kooky, hasn't it? Um, To the point where you can probably find five different forums online of, of Christians fighting over how to argue the best. And this is, this is really interesting. So this, the second reason this might be relevant to us is that you may have sat under, if you're in this room, my year-long apologetics course. And you might want to know, what I, you know how I changed my mind on apologetics, uh, are apologetics necessary, and that, that kind of thing. And the third is in our post-Enlightenment culture, the concept of worldview, which came from Kant, Uh, has sort of developed into everybody has sort of a worldview, a lens, a thing they look at everything through. And and so this is relevant for how we engage ourselves, how we view ourselves, how we view the world. So it's quite relevant. Now, this may be a little bit of review for a lot of people, but it's always helpful to to have some review. So some questions that, that I might answer today are, how do I get knowledge? The second is, are apologetics biblical? And third is how does God give me hope, joy, conviction, encouragement in the knowledge that he gives us? So let's begin by discussing the doctrinal topic today, the role of the Holy Spirit in knowledge. And before we get into our text, which is Psalm 14, if you want to start turning there, you want to start turning to Psalm 14, it's helpful to see that outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in the effectual call, all men are what I'm calling, quote-unquote, atheists, or as the Dutch divines said, people that are godless. Godless, without God. 
And we'll explain that a, l- a little bit more in a second. So Psalm 14.1, I'm going to go ahead and read from starting in verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that they, that they did understand and seek God. Verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat upon up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord. So the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Does this mean atheism in the sense that we might think of it today? Probably not. For the concept of pure atheism as we conceive today didn't really exist until the Enlightenment, really in a big way. Every culture, really until modernity, had some form of religion. Whether that be some sort of paganism or earth religion, uh, Baals, we read all the time in the Old Testament about that, but you even see documents left from other ancient societies. They were, they were, they were cultic, kind of pagan, sort of ritualistic religions. Now, now you're probably wondering why I've chosen to describe men who clearly have a religion then, who clearly serve some god, as, quote, atheists. This is a more practical, not necessarily a technical definition. We're not trying to change the definition of atheism here, but in Psalm 14.1, David is clearly writing in a context where the concept of there is no God did not exist, yet he says this. Yet he says, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. So what is David talking about here? Now, this, this modern invention of atheism as sort of no God exists whatsoever is, is a concept conceived in the Enlightenment and birthed the likes of Darwin and Nietzsche and Hitler and basically the people that run this country. All come from the same conception and are all birthed from the same idea. What David means here is those that employ their efforts and minds to mocking and reviling the true God. Those that perhaps are quite religious but reject the true God. So all men are religious, right? We, we, we are all human beings, and we've seen this with our own eyes. <clears throat> all men are religious. This is because men are religious creatures by design. They are made in the image of God and are therefore moral creatures. They are religious creatures, which means they are designed to worship. And in the absence of Jehovah as the object of their worship, All men erect altars made according to their own image and to their own heart and to their own desires. And and, and this is to say, for those that they might not agree with me here, who can survey the history of the earth, the history of the world, and find a single society that did not begin worshiping something the second they had a chance to stop and think? You can't find any. Even today, the so-called atheists... Worship the earth with their global warming conspiracies. They sacrifice children in abortion. They have eschatological prophecies about the end of the world caused by our carbon emissions. And they engage in promiscuous sexual mating rituals every weekend. I would guarantee if you dropped an Egyptian from 300 BC in downtown Tempe, they would be, feel very much so at home. 
They would say the women are naked. They're dancing promiscuously and sexually. And they go back to their dorms and to their apartments and to their houses and have sexual rituals. This feels just like paganism. The ancient pagan societies would probably feel very much so at home, so as long as they didn't see a cell phone or a car. So by atheist, I do not mean believing in no God. By atheist, I mean godlessness, without belief in the true God, wickedness, idolatry, and to quote the psalm, those that are altogether become filthy. Paul, in the New Testament, gives us license to take such a definition in Ephesians 2.12, when he says that men who are aliens to the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without God in the world. Now, I'm not arguing to redefine what atheist means. We're not going to go and say, well, you're not actually an atheist, right? That, that's, that's not helpful. But what I am arguing for is assigning a biblical theology to what the atheists say they are. Right? They will say, I, I truly don't believe in God. I truly am not religious. I truly, I'm not in my heart, not in my mind, not in my soul. I truly don't believe in God. And then they go and sacrifice children. And then they go and have a, a doomsday eschatology. And then they go and they do all these religious things. And you're like, wow, you're pretty religious for, for an atheist. So we're assigning a biblical theology to this, which is to say that despite what they're saying they are, they're clearly a religious person. They're clearly a religious person. They are those who deny God in word, heart, and mind, indeed. And you'll find that the most militant atheists, and this is the, this is the most condemning thing for this particular ideology, the people who say, I'm truly, I don't believe in God, he doesn't exist, those people typically and almost always have a deep hatred for God. It's very hard to hate something you don't believe in, right? So that's a, that's a logical contradiction. So then atheism is more of a theoretical concept than one that actually exists in the real world. In theory, they don't believe in God. In theory. But there's not a single man that you can, they can genuinely look at and say, yeah, that, that person's got you know, no religion. Because they do. They indeed have religion. So what does this have to do with knowledge? There, there are a couple of things that I thought would be helpful for us to conceptualize the idea of knowledge. The idea of God's knowledge and how it actually applies to our doubts, applies to our faith, applies to the people that we do evangelism to, which is, uh, I, I was laughing because it's quite providential that I thought of this topic today, because Dane basically is going to touch on, or touched already on a lot of the things I'm about to say. But I want to talk about today three types of theoretical atheism, right? Atheism that, that doesn't actually exist, uh, and the first category is those that have verbally said, out, you know, outwardly, and in their heart, denied that God exists. Though this is much foolishness and in vain, for in reality no such person has ever existed. The second is that those that say they cannot decide whether God exists, right? I'm unsure whether the immortal soul exists, whether heaven and hell is real, whether God is real. They're basically agnostic, right? They're, they're like, I'm open to it, but I don't know. And the third are those that are practical atheists. Those that perhaps doubt that God exists. Maybe they outwardly say, yeah, yeah I have faith that God exists, but, but they don't really know or would prefer that he doesn't exist. Right? Those that actually believe and say, it would be better for me if this God didn't exist. Because I know what he requires of me, and I'm not, not up for it. So a practical atheist is one 
that, do, that, that, that might not want him to exist. Who, or, and finally, in the most common kind of practical atheist, is the, who, those who live as though he does not exist. Petrus von Maastricht, a Dutch Reformed divine, says that day by day in every place they are observed in large numbers before our eyes among Christians themselves, these practical atheists. So these, this practical atheism, I would say, is, is one of the most dangerous things that, that lives in our modern church. It's a very dangerous thing because uh, many, of these, many of these churches are, are increasingly worldly and they look like TED Talks and they're kind of secular and fun, uh, often entertaining. And so you can go in there and just be a really nice person and make your whole way through this, this life of being a Christian as a good person and not hear the gospel once. Not know the, the demand of God upon your life because these churches don't, don't, don't tell you the demands of Scripture. In other words, they don't give you the right knowledge. They don't give you the right knowledge, and that's, that's important. Now, we have as Christians a great motivation to understand why this kind of belief should be avoided and cast down from our minds. We have a great motivation. Why? Because it affects our joy. It affects our, the way we think and the way we act the way we treat our families, the way we treat our friends. Our, our knowledge is, is quite important. We, we, we've been studying Hosea for some time now. He says, my people perish, are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. We, we always wander. In the absence of godly knowledge, we pursue secular knowledge. Simple as that. So Psalm 14.1 is a sufficient teacher on its own. I'm going to read it again for us. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. So a couple of observations, five observations actually from this text. The first is that the fool, the one who lacks knowledge, this foolishness renders people stupid and irrational. Without the knowledge of God, people are rendered stupid and irrational like beasts, like the brute. The second is that it corrupts men, the lack of godly knowledge, corrupts men in the whole person, in their life, in their words, in their actions. Lack of godly knowledge affects the whole person, their life, and their words, and their deeds. The third we see later on in the passage that it is detestable before God. Right? God loves his knowledge. He doesn't love our worldly knowledge. He loves his knowledge. Fourth, it makes man useless to do anything good, either in the service of men or the service of God. When you lack knowledge, when you are a fool, it makes you useless. Fifth, it aims the threats of God directly at men. Think about our study in Hosea, where they, they, they are being judged because they have neglected the word of the Lord. They're being judged because in the absence of true religion, of heart religion, of true belief, they, they turned from God, and they started sacrificing the blessings of God on the altars of the Baals. And this is what it means when it says, my, my, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Because in their ignorance, their willful ignorance, albeit, but, but they also, when you, when, you, when you forget something, you intentionally forget something. Something that you once knew, and then forget. That was Israel. They intentionally had neglected the word of the Lord and in turn turned and started worshiping the Baals, thinking that the Baals were going to give them what Jehovah was going to, had given them historically. 
So it, it aims the threats of God directly at men. Israel was judged severely for this. In Philippians, the scriptures say that the end of such belief in chapter 319 is destruction. It's destruction. And finally, one sixth point is that it corrupts men and turns them wholly to evil. And we see this reflected in Psalm 1015. Now for the doctrinal and practical remedies for such a state, which may be applied to ourselves or the people around us. You know, you might be one of those people that says, I've never struggled with atheism. Never once. Not even in my Christian life. Then, then you still should listen right now, because I guarantee you, look around in this room, there are people in your congregation, people in your lives, that have struggled with it. And they may come to you, and they may need that encouragement. And they, mean, they may need you to, to pick you up and say, hey, you need to be doing these things. Let's pray. How can I encourage you? I've never struggled with this, but I know the remedy. Right, so, so even if you don't struggle with this practical atheism, listen. Because you, you may and, and likely will need to bless somebody even in this room. One day. If not this day. So the doctrinal and practical remedies for such a state, a lack of knowledge, a godlessness. First, we must, as Christians, cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, this verse has been bastardized by modern exegetes to say that this gives us a license to go and beat up atheists. We're to go find the lofty opinions. Root them out. Go discover the atheists under every rock and squash him with our knowledge. That is not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about idolatry. Your lofty opinions, your vain imaginations. That's what this verse is talking about. When you have vain and wicked thoughts against God, you are to cast those down. You are to cast those down. And such imaginations are, there's three examples I'm going to give you that, that, that every one of us has likely struggled with in this room. The first is that your religion can save you. If I do these five things all of my life, God will find me approvable, approved and acceptable in his sight, right? Whether it, be a, whether it be your scripture reading, whether it be your works of service, whether it be your church attendance, we all have five things that we try to do. And the belief that, that those five things can save you has sent more men to hell than any other thing that the work of the devil has done. The belief that you can save yourself by your man-made religion. Very dangerous. We must cast this imagination down. That's why when, when we administer the supper, we say, take your works, forget about them, cast them off, and approach the table naked. You will only be saved by Jesus Christ, not of yourself. The second vain imagination is that divine providence does not keep watch over you. That you can hide from God. That your actions will not have judgment, and they will not have blessing. We forget that part, too. Right, that, that you're just going to get away with sin your whole life without anything bad or good happening to you by God's providence. But what do the scriptures say, and what does our confession say accurately from the scriptures, that God is sovereign over all things great and small. There's not a single place, neither height nor depth, that you can go to escape God. Psalm 139 talks about this. There is no place you can escape God's providence. And so one way, one lofty opinion that we have is that we can get away with stuff. 
we can get away with stuff. If I hide this thing from my brothers and sisters in Christ, they'll never find out about it. There's this thing about secret sin is that it, it hides behind your eyes. It hides behind your eyes, and you can see it in people. You can see people that have addictions to things behind closed doors because they walk in the room after doing that thing, and you can see the death in their eyes. You can see the despair. And God certainly sees it. Though man, you may fool, God certainly sees it. And so when we believe that God, we say we give lip service to, God is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. All things are held and maintained by him, by his son. And yet we don't live like that. We're not, we're not afraid of consequences for our actions. And we also don't live as though God actually cares about you and will love you and bless you. And this is likely due to the, the bastardization of God's providence by the prosperity gospel teachers. But the third is that the immortality of the soul is fiction. Right? That, we're not, that, that, that this life is it for us. As Christians, we, we often forget that. We, we, first of all, in two ways. We forget that people go to hell, and so we have no urgency to preach the gospel. And we forget that we're going to, to, to be in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus. And so we never think about it. We think about the here and the now, or perhaps that thing that we want, our idolatry, whatever it is we think about. We, we, we oftentimes forget that there is going to be a time where there is no tears, there are no tears, there is no suffering, there will be no pain, there will only be joy after joy after joy after joy in, with actual being with Christ. And we oftentimes forget that that's our reality. And so a, a way that we practically cast this down is we don't think about that. That is a great source of joy, dear church, to meditate upon the glory that is to come. It's a great source of joy. Second, we must reject impiety and love of self. John 3.30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. We must reject our impious ways of living. Third, we must avoid those things which teach us the axioms of godlessness. Or join ourselves to those who go after godlessness and foolishness. So th this, is a, this is something a lot of men and women in here in their 20s. Uh, for, for some reason, the, the, you've probably heard that the best way to do evangelism is to go and just live like the world. Right? Go be in the world. Right? Go, to, go to do these things. Go to a party, but don't drink a beer. Right? When I was in uh, college... I was advised by one of my leaders, they were like, yeah, you can go to parties, but I always bring a water bottle so everyone knows I'm not drinking, right? So I, I can go and be in the world, be in the lion's den, be at the places I'm not supposed to be at. So as long as I've got a water bottle, it's going to keep me from doing those things. Very interesting perspective, but it's kind of a foolish perspective. And, and so there is an appropriate time and place for evangelism in the world. But that time and place is not at a, at a kegger, right? Not the time and place to go and be a, a light in a dark place. Because what will end up happening is you'll just be darkness in a dark place. You'll be darkness. In, unless you really want to go in there and start open-air preaching at a kegger. That's usually not the intention, though. Usually people that go to keggers don't have any intentions of open-air preaching, right? They're going to open something, but it's definitely not going to be the gospel. Fourth, we must avoid distorting or devaluing 
the source of knowledge, the scriptures. For who has ever survived that journey as a Christian? The second you start to take this book, and you start to say that, well, Moses was just kind of a faith community. The second that you say, well, you know, Paul might have not wrote that. In fact, it's likely a woman authored Hebrews. We don't really know. The second you start saying, well, the Jewish conception of justification would have been way different. You can't preach Christ in the Old Testament because the faith, Jewish faith communities would have had no perception of Christ. Or perhaps one of the a really common one today is, well, the, 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 the Jews were, were not, they, they weren't Jehovah worshipers at first. They were polytheists. This is clear. If we look at the other Near Eastern cultures, and then we start shaping our covenant theology to Near Eastern cultures. But guess what is interesting about the Near Eastern cultures? They were all pagans. And so what you're saying then, that the religion of Jehovah was actually not the religion of Jehovah. The law didn't come from Jehovah. It came from Habarabi. When you go down that road, you are not long as a Christian. Guarantee it. I guarantee the next step is apostasy. The next step is apostasy. The apostle Peter actually alludes to such men in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 5, those who would seek natural explanations for the supernatural things that God does. Interesting, right? Fifth, we must apply preventative and restorative care to our minds to avoid these traps. It is never an accident when you find yourself with some unbelief. Never an accident. There's always something. I, I always, uh, whenever I'm working through something, you know, my wife's struggling with something or I'm struggling with something, I do this to t- teach this to myself. I always say that, that for every B, there's an A. Every effect has a cause. And what's the cause? Was it my inattentiveness towards when I was listening to the sermon? Was I pursuing a sin? Was I hanging out with the world a little bit too much? What was I doing that caused me to get to this place I'm getting? And this is, this is essentially a classical kind of understanding of the world, this, this, this idea of causality, right? This is the way we think, that, that, that effects have causes. The effects have causes. Nothing just kind of creates itself. And so if you're struggling with something, some, some godlessness, for example, we're talking about here, the lack of knowledge, Look to the A. What caused this? Have you been doing the things in your heart that you're supposed to be doing? Or have you been doing the things in your heart that you're not supposed to be doing? Maybe you're reading your Bible every day, but, but as you're reading, you're kind of, you know, not paying attention, missing words, thinking about that thing that you want to do later, and you get nothing from it. Heart religion is the key here. So the way that we do this, the way that we prevent and restore is the first by attacking every folly with the invincible truth of Scripture. When we have a vain thought, we we need to know what the Scriptures say and do what Jesus did when the devil tempted him. Quote Scripture back to the devil. Quote Scripture back to yourself and believe that Scripture. So so that requires a knowledge of this thing. You you need to have a knowledge of the Bible. The second is by casting down the small, petty arguments that arise in our minds. Those little ones so easy, so common to believe and fall into the trap that you're the only Christian that has ever thought, well, am I really saved? 
Does God really exist? You're not the only person. In fact, look around. Any church you go in, true Christians have had that thought. The third, you set before your eyes and heart the scriptures as the lens of your soul. Do not trust your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. And finally, you exhaust yourself in prayer for yourself and others. This is a really practical implementation. When you're doubting or you're struggling with godlessness, unbelief, start praying for other people. Start praying for yourself. And you'll forget what you were thinking about before. It's really helpful. Sixth, we must avoid ignorance of the scriptures. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. So this applies to ignorance produced by neglect. This, this applies to ignorance that's kind of feigned or pretended religion. Pretended ignorance. Uh, pretended ignorance is one of my pet peeves. Where someone will act as though they don't know something so that they can kind of get out of it. Right? Well, I didn't know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Feigned ignorance. There's no excuse for it. Third, intentional ignorance. Studied rebellion. Studied rebellion, intentional ignorance, where you actually, you say, yeah, I I know that listening to 50 hours of Christopher Hitchens might not be great for me. But hey, you know, I want to know what the world's teaching, and pretty soon you believe it. Right? You have to be in the right place to listen to these kinds of things. And if you fill your mind with the world, if you fill your mind with secular truths, don't be surprised when you start sounding a little secular and start sounding a little bit like the world. Shouldn't surprise you. Remember, bees have A's. Effects have causes. And then practical ignorance. We read in James 4.17, him that knoweth to do good and, then, and doeth it not is in sin. This is, this is a very practical one. If things in your soul or those people's souls that you know is not a right, look hard in the six places I just laid forth to you. Look hard in that direction. Look very hard in that direction. Set yourself up to practice examining your knowledge. What is your true knowledge given to you by God? Examine the kind of knowledge that you have. The true knowledge, saving knowledge, restorative knowledge. Where is the source of your knowledge coming from? And what do you actually believe in? These are the things that we need to be examining in ourselves. Now, what's the Holy Spirit's role in all this? Knowledge of truth, of sin, of the need for salvation, comes by the Spirit working with the word in our spirit. No man ever believes that the Bible is the word of God without the Holy Spirit, right? No man ever believes they're saved without the Holy Spirit. No man can be assured in their faith without the Holy Spirit. And so as stingy, conservative, reformed Calvinists, we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. Because it's the only way our doctrine works. Outside of this function... All of our knowledge is conjured up within ourselves. We, we create our knowledge. We go and study our knowledge. And then it's us. And then we're, we're kind of venturing into the land of, well, I'm saved because I think I am. I saved, I'm saved because it's the most logical position to be saved. And we end up in that dangerous, dangerous realm, that dangerous category. And let me just tell you that, that is as atheist as it gets. Someone who believes they can save themselves. In Proverbs 3, 6, it says that we... Acknowledging God in all of our ways generates faith by the power of the Spirit. This is the general gist of, of what that passage says. And so when we, when we consider our knowledge, it's acknowledging God's truth and conforming our mind to that. 
conforming our hearts to that. It gives us a greater appetite for God when we acknowledge God's knowledge in our whole lives. It excites zeal. We get passionate to get more of that knowledge. Experience more of that truth. And the same is true for the opposite. When we fill our minds with secular garbage, we want more of that stuff. Why do you think watching a Netflix show is so addicting? Because we binge and our heart wants more and more and more. And pretty soon we're in season eight of the office. That's the way our heart is after any kind of knowledge. That's why video game designers literally design games to make them addicting because that's just the way our hearts are. We're actually designed to to think this way. Now, what we set our attention to is very, very important then, right? Because our brains are designed that way. The third is if we acknowledge God in all of our ways, it combats despair and excites joy, right? If you, if you for, for a season, are saying, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if God exists. Well, read Psalm 14. The fool have said in his heart, there is no God. You say, well, am I a fool? Apparently, right now, I'm a fool. What's the remedy? Believe in Christ Jesus. Get yourself out of that by the power of the Spirit. Attend unto knowledge. What does God say about this? What does God say about this? Fourth, Knowing, attaining to, and recognizing the things God loves and God hates is a means of assurance. It's a means of assurance when your knowledge lines up with God's knowledge because you've been a student of the scriptures in your heart and your mind and your soul. When you see something you do and you're like, that was wretched. How do you think you know that that was wretched? Is it your just innate goodness? Or was it the power of the Holy Spirit working in you saying that was wretched? And that's a very, very important confirmation of faith. If, if after a season you know that you were just wicked in this season, and yet you have these moments of, wow, I am wicked in this season, that's a good indication that the Lord is telling you to come back. He's tugging on your heart. The fifth is that it is a practical application of faith. Proverbs 1.1 says, to know wisdom and instruction And then goes on and says, to receive the instruction of wisdom. This is what Christians do. To know wisdom and instruction and to receive the instruction of wisdom. How do we know we receive? We receive instruction and wisdom. This godly knowledge, this godly instruction, this godly wisdom produces light and heat. John 5.35 compares it to a burning and a shining light. Attaining unto knowledge and living by it protects us from having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Though by the Spirit this knowledge is a light that hath shined in our hearts, not just our minds. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Our knowledge can't simply be head knowledge. We talk about this all the time at Agoras. You can't just be a dry, stuffy theologian. And, and, and Jared and I, we were having this conversation a while back how Any doctrine that only lives in your head is probably a useless doctrine. And in fact, is a useless doctrine. Which is why when you go to set yourself to study something, it is important to lay out all the materials, count the cost, and say, how will this affect my life? What's this doctrine going to do to me and the way I believe and the way I live? And so any doctrine that really has no impact on that, maybe save that for later. Maybe maybe save these, these sort of high tower 
counting how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle doctrines for later. Things that have no impact on you are somewhat impractically useless for you. They must root in our hearts. And so we, we pray that God would reveal himself to us. This is a biblical prayer. Reveal yourself to me, God. And to reveal himself to our friends and to write his knowledge on our hearts and our friends' hearts according to his word by the power of the Spirit. We say with Moses, show me now thy way that I may know thee. Exodus thirty-three thirteen. Now, polemic and practical considerations. It's first valuable to know who we are to be polemic with, right? And I mentioned in my introduction that the, the, the conservative Calvinist church typically uh, has quite especially been over, overrun by this stuff. And even, even when we planted Agoras, I was all about that. I thought apologetics were the, were, the, were the thing I needed to be to be a minister. I needed to be just a great apologetic resource for people. And I spent hours and hours and hours and hours on it. I taught a class for a year at Agoras Church about apologetics. Presuppositionalism, classical apologetics, all sorts of stuff. So we need to know what the purpose of this is. And I'll start by saying that our knowledge that we have by the Spirit is of little spiritual value to people that do not have the Spirit. Very little value for them. Very little value. The scriptures do not say your spirit-filled knowledge is the power of God unto salvation to the unbeliever. It does not say. What does it say? It says the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Romans 1.16. This is why Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 1 Corinthians 1.17 So what is the value of our wisdom of words? None. None. So doctrinally and theologically, apologetics kind of are awful if you want someone to be saved. And going in and debating people on Facebook and and YouTube and, you know, know, challenging people to debates, I mean, this is sort of a kind of posturing that the Calvinist church loves to do these days. I mean, I saw... Uh, this guy debating Calvinism last month on YouTube, and now he's Eastern Orthodox. Like, the, the, this, is not, this is not working for the church. It's not working. Contention does not equal good doctrine. And so, I say perhaps controversially that our knowledge should not be deployed in debate with the fool. And that's, that's quite controversial. Whether that be online whether you're having you know, people over for beer or tea or soda, whatever your thing is, in social settings or even in a publicly moderated debate, the only thing we should be concerned with to the fool, to the fool, is Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. That's it. Why? Because that's the power of God unto salvation. That's the power of God unto salvation. So now to answer, who are we to be ironic and polemic with? Christians. Christians is who we're to be ironic and polemic with. To the fool, we preach the gospel and know nothing but Christ. But to Christians, we rebuke. We can be sharp. We must be light and heat to them. There's times for, for being ironic, and there's, and, and there's times for being polemic. But for the Christian, to the Christian. Why? So they might be restored. Always restoration. Always restoration. Never destruction. 
when we apply light and heat, it is always, always, always to restore, to bring them back, to bring them in, that they might be called brother again. Always. Who are we to be ironic and polemic with? Christians, because our appeals, the knowledge we use can actually be understood. Right? And that's how this relates to our topic of knowledge. So, to the so-called atheist, we are fools for Christ, not coming with excellency of speech or wisdom. But to the Christian, we can appeal to knowledge. Why? Because if they are truly Christian, their source of knowledge is the same as our source of knowledge, and they're going to get it. The Spirit works in the Word in their heart, too. And we can make these appeals knowing that if they truly have the Holy Spirit, they will be convicted, and they will come around, and they will repent, and they will come back. And even if you're wrong, you'll be the one repenting and coming back, so. So finally, the power of the Holy Spirit in knowledge from kind of an experiential perspective. We, we covered most of our practical application within the body of today's lecture. Hopefully that was helpful to you. Hopefully there's a, there a little bit of doctrine, a little bit of experience, a little bit of this and that, and hopefully that was a helpful model for you. But the doctrinal component of today's lecture, we'll recap here in a second, and then I'll open it up for questions and comments. So in this world, there are two kind of categories of people mostly. The so-called atheist, the hater of God, and then the believer, those that have been saved by God. The first, the giver of belief and the giver of knowledge, is God. Therefore, if we are to preach the gospel, we better be preaching his knowledge. If we're going to interact with the fool, we better be using God's knowledge to bring them in. And the second is that the getter of belief and the getter of knowledge is us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the giver, we are the getter. God is the giver, we are the getter. And third, we get instruction by receiving instruction. God is the giver, we are the getter. And we get this instruction where? From the scriptures. Now, I'll lay out my just my quickly little, my little syllogism. It might not technically be a syllogism, but for the, those that, that might have some experience of the charismatic group, this might be helpful for you. They say often, well, the Holy Spirit continues to speak through me in visions and dreams and words of knowledge and this sort of thing. False. Uh, that is not what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit does not do that because the Holy Spirit must agree with the Scriptures. And if any further revelation agrees with the Scriptures but is not in the Scriptures, it is useless. And if it disagrees with the Scriptures, you are now a false prophet. Therefore, we go to the Scriptures as our ultimate proof, ultimate source of faith, foundation of Christian faith and practice. So either it's wrong or it's useless. Any ongoing revelation, wrong or useless. So such instruction from the word is a salve, a remedy, a preventative medicine, a defense, both, both against our unbelief and the unbeliever, and an encouragement. We do not combat our own imaginations by our own knowledge. We do so by leaning not on our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. We combat the world in the same way, but one note on this. I never really addressed this. You might be saying, okay, if apologetics aren't biblical, what are apologetics? Well, that passage in 1 Peter 3.15, where the, the only time that word that, that is mentioned in that context is in the context of giving defense for the hope that is within you. The context is persecution. And what people take apologetics is they go and they take apologetics and they go and offend atheists and say, hit me. It's like the crazy guy in prison that wants to get beat up that goes and picks the biggest guy in the yard and wants to get punched in the face. 
That is what people do when they go take a shield onto the street and start bashing people with it, and then are surprised when they come around with a sword and lop their head off. Apologetics do not save, but they do have a purpose in the Christian life. And what is that purpose? To offer a response, a reason for the hope that is within you. That Christ may not be made foolish in front of men. That's the purpose. And we have an industry of apologetics, and I know that's very offensive. I know that's really controversial, but that's what the scriptures say. So, we believe in the Holy Spirit working with the word in the hearts of men. We don't think that there's any special apologetic method. Though apologetics can have their place, they do not have their place in salvation. What ultimately saves man, what, what in the first place, second place, last place, every place, always saves men is the power of God and the salvation in the gospel. So we trust not in our own knowledge, in our own heart, in our own religion, and we do not act perplexed when our own ways fail. We don't act perplexed when we spend a whole summer listening to YouTube apologetics and reading Van Til and reading Bonds, and then we go out and try to fight a Mormon, and they're like, yeah, I don't, don't really want to argue with you, bud. I mean, we're just outside of, we're trying to do our church thing. Can you go away? And you're like, well, what do I do now? You know, they don't want to fight me. I can't do apologetics. They won't attack me. If our ways are not working to give us assurance or faith, the simple answer is to look to God's ways and thank him for showing us when our ways have failed and recognize that that's a work of the Holy Spirit, knowing that you failed, knowing that you've sinned, feeling that deep remorse. That should provoke assurance within you. Our own devices make us foolish and lead us to tumultuous waters. When we lean on our own understanding and neglect the knowledge of God, we do act as practical atheists, and we shouldn't be surprised when we're living as practical atheists as well. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions, concerns? Yeah, Jake. Um, the play, the charismatics, as it's 